Hello, and welcome to PDA, Neurodivergence, and the Perpetually Determined Advocate. I am your Perpetually Determined Advocate, Cassandra. This is a bi-weekly podcast dedicated to raising awareness and acceptance of PDA, or Pathological Demand Avoidance, which is a lesser-known part of the autism spectrum. My hope for this podcast is to provide a place of learning and growth, as well as a platform for PDAers, professionals, parents, family members, and others to speak out on this condition, as well as providing resources for those who want to learn more. If you or someone you know would like to come on and use this platform to tell their story, please contact me at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. Now, let's launch into this episode's topic. So we are joined today by Dr. Jennifer Corey from the Iceberg Therapy Center, yes? Yes, Iceberg Therapy Services, that's right. All right, we've, you know, tried to do this once before, had some technical issues, but we've managed to get all that worked out. Um, And so I really, I, I like whenever we talked initially, you had mentioned selective mutism, and I thought it would be good to not only talk about that, but also masking as well. So, um, because I feel like those two things are kind of misunderstood in the idea that, you know, like I said, with, um, with my son, people tend to think, oh, well, it's selective, so they can just turn it on and off at will. So, um, why don't you, I guess the, the, first thing would be to go with the one that's a little bit less known. So what is selective mutism? Yeah, selective mutism is not widely known. Um, So this is when someone is not able to speak in some situations, but they can in others. It's not, you know, it's not an ability. It's not a communication ability. It's Mm -hmm. their anxiety causes them to freeze up in certain social settings so that they're unable to speak. Um, and so yes, that selective part is um, misleading because yeah. it's not the child choosing whether they're gonna be silent or not. They're just excessively shy. It's an anxiety disorder. Which, I mean, that just seems like would go hand in hand with, with the PDA profile because it has such there high is, anxiety. Yeah, there is a common tie there and you know definitely um a lot of like co-occurrence of selective mutism and pda i imagine pda <clears throat> so with selective mutism like how how does that manifest and how can you sort of identify that so it usually shows up when a child is starting school right because if you know they've been home with their parents and Mm-hmm. have been speaking fully with them. Then they go to school, like say it's preschool, or you know, it's usually caught early in mm-hmm. their school years. Um, and then, you know, they'll have to be usually identified by the teacher saying, hey, this child isn't speaking mm-hmm. um, at school. And it goes on longer than just the first month of school where they're, you know, getting adjusted and comfortable. Okay. Um, and it, it can look really different from one child to the next, of course, but like one maybe you know, completely frozen, like they don't want to draw any attention to themselves whatsoever, like not, you know, able to get up and go to the bathroom or, um, you know, literally kind of frozen in the physical sense. And then another child might be comfortable, like participating Mm -hmm. and playing with the other kids and everything, just not when it comes to speaking, able to do that. Like maybe they could write or gesture. Okay. 
keeping it some other way. So it kind of will vary a lot. There's just a couple examples. Wow. Like they may have just one person they whisper to, but not anyone else. Yeah. Um, so someone they feel more they comfortable with. Right. Okay. So yeah, the teacher would have to um, generally see that and okay. um, make the parent aware of it. And that's what happened with um, my son. That's kind of where I came across this. Okay. So he then, went to um, Mother's Day out and then preschool, and he was uh, found out he didn't speak the first few months of school. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, it makes sense that, like, mm-hmm. switching those environments, that's obviously going to cause um, higher anxiety. So I guess, right. In this sense, selective just means, like, not necessarily that they're choosing when and when they are not quote-unquote mute but more of a um situational type thing exactly like i think the term was originally elective mutism with an e but that made it seem too much like oh this is something the child is choosing to do and they weren't so they changed it to selective but i think that's still kind of a misnomer that makes it sound like it's under their control when it's not so situational mutism is really a good way to talk about it okay they can talk in some situations and not others okay so yeah, it's so with with something like this, is it yeah. is it similar to like say a trauma response or a defense mechanism type of thing? Mm, I would say no. I mean, it's just maybe that they share anxiety in common because mm-hmm. you know with selective mutism, it's really. Anxiety is okay. severe and it prevents them from speaking, but it's not typically a trauma response or related to that. Okay. It's just kind of there, like, you know, a child is, like, predisposed to this, they're, um, maybe genetically or, like, personality, and mm-hmm. then they go to school and it happens, you know? Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, with regard to um, trying to help someone who may be dealing with selective mutism, what is the best approach to help someone who is dealing with this? Yeah, so definitely, you know, there's not not like a one fit for all sort of right. approach, but, um, you know, and it's really individually based, but definitely needs to be, you know, evaluated and treated by a prof- professional who specializes in the area, mm-hmm. you know, for best outcomes, because it's not, you know, it is less common. It's not something that um, any provider is going to be generally trained in or have experience right. in. So you need a specialist, um, maybe, you know, harder mm-hmm. to find in certain regions. But um, anyway, that, you know, it could be a psychologist or a speech language pathologist. Okay. Like ideally, you have a team where you have the speech pathologist treating mm-hmm. the child and you have like a therapist, but oftentimes, mm-hmm families are just going to be able to find one, if any, you know, that is in their right. area. Who knows SM? Um, it's kind of like, you know, um, reminds you of with PDA in that sense of, you know, it's hard to find a provider. Yes. And, or you just find someone who's like willing to learn and mm-hmm. be educated, you know? Um, but anyway, what else? Um, yeah, they usually treat it in a way that you want the child to be exposed to where that you know anxiety provoking situation is like Mm -hmm. but you know in a very like supported um gradually like a gradual hierarchy of this is the easiest task working up little Mm -hmm. by little to the hardest task and where they have like that adult supporting them and 
you know, in a respectful kind of way to help them as, you know, the more they get exposed to doing the speaking task, it's hard for them, the more their anxiety will diminish, you know? Right. Um, so that's generally, but I think like when you have a child who has, you know, other neurodivergences going on, like PDA, you know, a PDA child in particular, like Mm -hmm. you wouldn't want to necessarily treat it in a behavioral kind of right traditional way. Yeah. Right. So for, um, for like in a, I'm trying to think how best to word this in like a classroom Mm -hmm. setting, um, mm-hmm. for like teachers who may be dealing with children who are, um, or, you know, like kids with selective mutism, is yeah. it best to just like, uh, kind of some of the similar things with PDA, just like soothing tones and just being really patient with them, letting them write it down if they need to, those kinds of things. Yes. Yeah. It's definitely like, you know, interesting and notable, like the have with, um, selective mutism or SM and PDA is like that common, um, highly sensitive neuroception. Right. We know that, right? So they're like going to fight or flight easily. So definitely like someone who is going to be that, you know, calm and right. calm demeanor, not, you know, draw excessive attention to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, you know, take the, for a teacher, you know, take the demand off right. of the child for speaking, mm-hmm. you know, and let them, like you said, let them, do however they can if it's point to something or raise their hand yeah yes or no sign or however it is or you know maybe um have like a little signal with the teacher like put them on your desk that means i need to use the bathroom or i need help you know oh wow there's great ideas yeah um is there i'm trying to think if there was is there anything else specific about selective mutism that you think that the listeners would be um, that they need to know or that they need to sort of look for? Well, I think to know it's, it's to see that um, there's, you know, some confusion around when you get into like selective mutism and being autistic, it's mm-hmm. not like where one causes the other. Like, you know, if you, right. you know, sometimes you have, an autistic person who is non-speaking right um and that's you know a communication difference but not the social anxiety you know piece that you have with selective mutism mm-hmm. right that difference so um you know they won't diagnose sm if you if it's due to like another communication difference right. but you can get them you know both co-occurring at the same time so that's where it gets a little bit complicated you know Oh, I can um, imagine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. At a higher risk for having SM if you are autistic. Oh, okay. So, well, that makes sense, though, because of the high levels of anxiety that come with autism. Um, right. And okay. other things like, you know, um, being an English language learner or, you know, having, like, another communication disorder, mm-hmm. like um, articulation or stuttering, you know, that would um, right. make someone more susceptible oh, to yeah. SM. Absolutely. Okay, so the other thing that is sometimes seen as, well, I guess like with the negative idea about something that is selective and and something that people can kind of turn on and off, and and that's also kind of common in, in autism, is masking. So just real quick for anyone who doesn't, um, who may not have, um, a grasp on what exactly it is. What is masking? 
Yes, yeah, so masking is, um, it's also called camouflaging, mm-hmm. if I heard that. Um, and apparently masking, I'm learning, is a certain type of um, camouflaging, but we kind of use those terms interchangeably a lot. So anyway, ma- but masking or camouflaging is someone hiding um, their autistic traits or, you know, um, their autistic traits are covered um, in the sense that they're, you know, looking their typical or fitting in. Mm-hmm. Um, right, and it can involve like um, compensating for the difficulties, um, taking on a different persona that's you know seems more neurotypical, or strategies to blend in with other people. Okay. Right. So, and this is, I think, where a lot of people have trouble with this. Is they're like, well, if they can take on the persona, if they can pretend to be neurotypical then how is it that, you know, that's where they kind of have that misunderstanding of, oh, well, they can just choose when when they're autistic and when they're not. And it's like, that's not exactly what's happening oh here. Yes, I think that is the big misunderstanding of because, yes, you know, you might mask more or less in some situations. Like what we're talking about with, you know, like Demetrius in mm-hmm. one situation, you might be more comfortable and speaking more fully than another. Same here, but it's not intentional you know, trying to deceit or trying right. to mask, you know, at a at yeah. a conscious high level. Yeah. And it just, it seems like too, it's, kids are more likely to mask in situations where they may have that higher anxiety. The same with like, like you were yes. saying with selective mutism or, you know, right. in, whereas if when they're like at home or if they're in their safe space, they're more likely to just not feel like they have to cover all of that up. And right. it, it seems like, too, I think with both of these, it, because they're considered, because they, you know, there's that selective um, misnomer there, it just kind of mm-hmm. seems like that might be part of the reason why so many, whether we're talking about schools or um, just outside personnel in general, people thinking, oh, well, this is a parenting issue. This is a parenting problem. Yes, um, yes. You know, because you're seeing something different than what we're seeing. And it's like, yeah, it's because the kid right. feels comfortable with me. <laughs> so is masking just like an, uh, an autistic or a PDA thing? Or do other neurodivergent people mask as well? Yeah, other neurodivergent people do mask as well. I mean, you could you could say that like everyone masks to a certain extent. Right. Even- if you're neurotypical, right, but the, the degree of masking is going to be much higher for neurodivergent individuals, like mm-hmm. ADHDers will mask, like let's say you're, you know, keeping yourself still in the classroom so you don't get in trouble, but you really need to move around, you know, something like yeah. that, um, or other kinds of neurodivergence, but like autistic masking is different in the sense of it's a trauma response, you know, to avoid right. okay. stigma and all that. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, because there is, I mean, and that's something I've noticed with with my kiddo, too, is one, because the school he's at now, it's, this is the newer school where they had the smaller classroom, and they're just like, we don't see these things. And I'm like, well, I get that. But then the um, the special ed coordinator who worked, her office was in the other school that he was in initially. She's like, no, 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 this happened at school, too. <laughs> like, it happened in the other school. I'm like, and the other thing, too, is, that, you know, kids at the previous school were picking on him. 
And so when he got to the new school, he didn't want that to happen. And so he's tried so hard, you know. So I guess masking, I'm sorry, what? Oh, no, I was going to say that's interesting because like a commonality with SM and PDAers is like the the school piece. I mean, not that SM Mm -hmm. only applies to school, but it often shows up there. And, you know, and a lot of our PDAers are masking at school or having Uh challenges there because of like just the expectations and demand the setting oh yeah yeah. has yet and Mm -hmm. um they'll talk about with sm like areas become contaminated which means like you know if you're at this you're at the school and you're unable to speak then it's hard for you to speak anytime you enter that school but Mm -hmm. you know that might transfer like to another school if you go there and um you know freeze up right and then you might be able to go to another place and speak freely, you know? Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's just that whole, it, that I don't think I even really fully comprehended the wide variety of ways that anxiety affects your life and can affect yeah. your ability to do so many different things. I never really right. considered yeah. Um, how much anxiety can impact you. And for kids with, you know, these various different conditions, when that anxiety gets high, it, it shuts things down. And I think that's the hard thing for people to wrap their heads around when it comes to this stuff. It's like, no, that, that right. anxiety can shut you down fast. Yeah, I think because people are so much used to looking at that surface level behavior. Mm-hmm. So it's, oh, the child is, you know, doesn't want to cooperate or... right. This, that, the other, yes. Mm-hmm. So I guess masking would then be kind of not necessarily selective, but sort of like selective in the same way that SM is. That It's really just sort of triggered by that um, that high anxiety and um, yes, that potential. And yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. How much demand is there? How burnout is the individual? Yeah. Okay. Um, how are the demands being um, express to them. Mm-hmm. That. So how do you, and, and this is probably a difficult question to, um, <laughs> to answer just because people are people, but how could people maybe understand masking better? Yeah, that is um, a good question. That's hard to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, how do people understand better? I mean, I think, if this answers your question, they're really getting the word out there and understanding that it is a trauma response, mm-hmm. not a strategy. Like, um, okay. that was something I read recently. You know, it's not like, okay, I can use this strategy to um, blend in with neurotypical people or to get along better in a social interaction with neurotypical people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that is not the same as masking. Masking is the trauma response, the um, like instant survival instinct, you mm-hmm. know, self-protection kind of thing of like, um, you know, don't get bullied, don't get, right, et cetera. And so I guess maybe with selective mutism, the same do is more just getting the word out there, right? The awareness, the understanding that just because this child can talk to this person doesn't mean they can talk to you kind of thing. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Because both of these, I mean, I think the awareness and understanding um, getting out is so important because yet you do need to approach it like a specific way mm-hmm. that takes knowing about it. Otherwise you could, you know, you could mean well and 
have a really, you know, negative or opposite effect of what you want to do with a child to help them, you know? Right. Um, somebody was going to say, let's see. About the, the getting the word about masking. Oh, yeah. And then I think the understanding, like you were saying, if people know this is masking, what that means, whatever we can do to help make an environment more supportive for a child where they feel more comfortable, less of a masking need, you know, mm-hmm. we can only, there's always going to be, I think, some degree of masking, but the less, the better for them in yeah. that environment, you know, finding the right school for them. You know, like a lot of us end up with um, homeschooling or unschooling. <laughs> oh, yeah. Kids. Speaks to that, right? Oh, yeah. Um, because it's so tricky. And I'm wondering when that's coming because we are we're dealing with a lot of school refusal because we've had to go from yes. it used to I could I would for him because he's in that small group that um, one of the teachers would wait in the cafeteria. So I'd be able to drive up and just drop him off at the cafeteria so he would just go straight to her. He wouldn't have to walk through the halls or anything. Um, and it got to the point where he wouldn't get out of the car. So we had to go. Mm-hmm. I had to start parking and walking him in. But even walking him in. It takes, you know, he, we walk in and he's the second he steps foot in there, he just starts to panic and he's, you know, I need to sit down and I don't want to stay here because what if something bad happens or, you know, um, it's just so much, so much anxiety and fear. And that's, that's the thing too, is you can, because you mentioned earlier that it's not so much, um, a strategy it's you know it's a it's a reaction it's it's not something that they're trying to do or planning to do for some sort of reaction or control um right and you can with him at least i can tell the difference between the times whenever he's just trying to do something or when he's genuinely like you can see in their eyes whenever this is something anxiety driven um you can 100 percent see that So, and I think I would assume like with uh, SM, it would be similar because since that anxiety is high, you'd be able to tell by the body language and by, you know, like the, the, the expressions and whatnot, that this is not just somebody refusing to talk to you. This is somebody who's in crisis mode. Yeah, I think you're right that, you know, generally you see, I mean, there's definitely plenty of kids where they see signs like, you know, like, like they have like the deer in headlights look and their bodies mm-hmm. are frozen or they won't, you know, they generally make eye contact, but then they don't in certain, you know, the situations where they're uncomfortable, mm-hmm. you know, and all that, right? Frozen. But, you know, other, other times I think it a little bit is more deceiving. Like they may physically look comfortable, but the inside they're not. So I guess it's more internalized for some kids, you know, you may yeah. not see it. Right. Yeah. Um. What's, you know, intrinsic and what's outside may not match up all the time. Right. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. So what, I mean, I guess as far as like the reasons people have for doing these things, it's, it's more like you were saying, anxiety driven. Um, so is there anything else then I guess, as far as the masking goes that you think that people need to know coming from, you know, like a professional perspective, well, yeah, I mean, I think we're still learning, of course, but I think mm-hmm. under, you know, the more professionals are understanding masking and that they know the negative 
repercussions of it. Like, you know, we know um, what it can be like to mask, but also like that's going to take its toll on, on our kids where they're, mm-hmm. you know, more likely to have anxiety or depression or other mental health issues or higher risk of suicide, or, you know, all these things, um, like loss of self-identity. So um, I think people knowing that and then having conversations with um, the kids about it because, you know, the more they're aware about masking and um, that's going to help them too. Right. Yeah. You know, it's kind of indirectly of, yeah, of lessening the need for masking. And then the other part is like just understanding that environment, like I said, of setting them up for being somewhere where they're most accepted and comfortable. And, you know, they have a way of like, um, yeah, like same with SM, they have a way of notifying their teacher, whoever Mm -hmm. that, um, they're feeling more anxious or they need a break or, you know, or this is too much. Right. Sensory overload, you know. Yeah, absolutely. They may not be able to stay it then, but they could, you know, have another system in place. Yeah. And that also makes me think of, you know, obviously creating a good environment is a good thing. It's something that we want to do, but on the flip side of that, forcing like for in situations where people maybe are not aware of the best approaches forcing it what kind of i mean what kind of damage are we talking about that because that has to be damaging to a kid's psyche oh yeah right that's surely creating the trauma oh yeah um so i guess that's that would be the other thing that'd be really important to make sure that um you know, people aren't trying to sort of know you can do this because I've seen you do it. So you're going to do it now. Right. Right. Yes. Like what can the child handle right now? And that, you know, yeah, that like yeah. you're saying, it fluctuates so much. So people look and say like, Oh, you could do this yesterday. I expect you to do it today. But right. the, it, their ability in that moment, given their anxiety level is going to, and everything else about the situation is going to vary. Mm-hmm. Even if you can't see it on the outside, you know, it might be something more internal, like burnout is hitting harder. What if it is, you know, so right. you have that. Don't expect it to be the same, mm-hmm. um, but see what they can handle in that moment. Like, okay, right now you can take this bit of a demand, but, um, you know, the next moment you can't, let's back off. Oh yeah. Like reading the child and following their lead. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's, I really wish there were better, I say that I wish there were better systems in place, better trainings for teachers. But at the same time, I I honestly, teachers are also kind of stretched pretty thin too. So it's kind of like we need to have better systems in place for the students, but we also need some better systems in place for our teachers. And it's just like a big cycle. Um, It is. It is. So, and I think that's why a lot of these kids, you know, they end up, like you were saying, we end up having to go homeschool or unschool or finding, you know, sort of smaller facilities. But I think the, mm-hmm. the difficult part for some, for a, well, for a lot of people, I would assume was, is that the private schools are expensive. I mean, they may have that better environment, yeah, but they're expensive that. and you can't always stay home to homeschool. And so just like, it feels sometimes like you're in a <laughs> never ending loop. So, yeah. Yes, that's where we're at for sure. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Can definitely relate there. Um, All right. Well, that was, 
I thank you once again for coming back and talking to me another time. I'm really glad I got to. <laughs> I'm glad that we were able to uh, get everything worked out technologically this time. And um, did you want to include anything about your practice for people who might be in and around your area? Sure. Yeah. Just if on, um, anyone does want to know, I'm in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, but I can see clients virtually in Louisiana and Florida um, for um, speech therapy or autism diagnostic services and recognizing PDA, mm-hmm. parent coaching, that kind of thing. Um, so it's iceberg therapy services. Okay. And you're, I will make sure to list your um, website also in the link in the description uh, for the episode. That way, if anyone wants some more information, they can go in there and get that. So thank you, Dr. Corey. I really appreciate you speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. As always, you can email me with any questions, comments, constructive criticism, or concerns at perpetuallydeterminedadvocate at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on social media. Just search PDA Neurodivergence and the Perpetually Determined Advocate on Facebook or Instagram. And until next time, remember, in a world where you can be anything, be kind.